This podcast from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Faith Bible Church is a Christ-centered Bible teaching ministry dedicated to bringing the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And now for this week's message from Pastor Alan Battle. We're in the second chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, verses 9 through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of God. So last week we began looking at the book of Ecclesiastes in this study of the wisdom literature of the Bible that we're calling Ancient Wisdom and Modern Times. We saw that this book seems to be a pessimistic take on life from a jaded and cynical old man. We learned that the author, a guy we're calling the professor, is playing the role of a secular man who wants to find out what gain there is in this life. But he despairs of finding it. In fact, this professor is King Solomon at the end of his life, and he is applying all of his accumulated wisdom to this problem. It's intended to be a kind of philosophy seminar for those who want to make sense out of the frustration that we experience in this life. The professor does this by contrasting a man-centered worldview with a God-centered worldview. There's two key terms used throughout this book, dozens and dozens of times. The first one is vanity, which means literally vapor. And it's used metaphorically to mean futility or worthlessness or meaninglessness. And the other phrase is under the sun. This is the life from the perspective of a natural man, from birth to death on this planet, the man who can only see things from a worldly point of view. So I have a riddle for you this morning. What do Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones and the professor of Ecclesiastes have in common? And I'll give you a hint. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. 
And that's the constant refrain of both the professor and Mick. This was the Stones' big breakthrough hit. It was the one that put them on the map in the United States in 1965 and launched them into superstardom. But what I find interesting is that Mick wrote this song as a young man who had not yet experienced the great success that was going to come to him. While the professor of Ecclesiastes wrote as an old man who had risen to the highest heights of accomplishment. And that tells me that young or old, rich or poor, satisfaction eludes everyone. In chapter 2, the professor is going to tell us about three things that could not bring him satisfaction. Pleasure, wisdom, and work. And this time the professor is not going to leave us hanging out to dry like he did at the end of chapter 1. No, he's going to take off his skeptic's mask at the end and give us a little glimpse of hope. So we didn't read the whole chapter beforehand today because it's really long. So instead, I thought I would read each of the three sections as we go. So we begin with verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. I also became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So in this passage, the professor is telling us all the ways that he sought to make sense out of life through pursuing pleasure. And the pursuit of pleasure is probably the most common thing that people do to attempt to give meaning to their lives. You hear rationales like, you only go around once, so get all the gusto you can. Remember that? Or eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
And the professor, due to his unlimited resources, could go for all the gusto that he wanted. He's going <clears> to... <throat> He's going about this task scientifically and with precision. In verse 1, he says that he is going to perform a test, an experiment to see if pleasure can provide the answers to life that he's seeking. And then he's going to record his findings for us. So the first thing he studies is laughter. Now, is laughter a bad thing? Proverbs says that a merry heart does a body good. But it also says that doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Laughter is a good gift of God, but it can be abused. Just spend a few minutes on Comedy Central, and you'll see that. For a comedian to be clean nowadays is a rarity. And late-night TV used to have a lot of good comedy on it. But now it's just a constant barrage of the celebration of sin and endless cynical, vicious attacks on biblical values. And even if laughter is not used in the service of sin, it's empty and vain if it's, not, if it's pursued for its own sake. So the professor concludes that laughter is useless. So next, he tries wine. And the ESV translates this as cheering his body with wine. The word literally means to drag. It means letting alcohol pull your body along, to take control. Now, this is the same man who said wine is a mocker, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So he didn't give control complete control over to wine. He tested the limits of drinking, but he didn't let it go too far. It says his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. He didn't let it take him over the edge and become an alcoholic. So he indulged, but he kept his wits about him. Like in the ancient Greek Epicurean philosophers, he sought pleasure in moderation, but that didn't provide that satisfaction that he was looking for either. So the next thing he sought meaning in was ambitious building projects. So you can see a catalog of all his projects if you go to 1 Kings. Here he mentions houses and vineyards, gardens, parks filled with trees, watered by pools that he also built. And notice he didn't just build one of each. They were all plural. In fact, he built stuff all over Israel. And it is a rare man that can achieve this kind of accomplishment. Uh, You might think that this would have given him satisfaction. But there's no guarantee of that. Howard Hughes was one of the most accomplished men in history. He took over his family's tool-making business when he was a young man, and he built it into a massive financial empire, and he became one of the richest men in the world. That company today is worth over $3 billion. But that wasn't enough for him. So he began making films 
and he became the head of a film company. And as a perk, he dated many of the most beautiful and famous women of that day. But that wasn't enough for him either, so he built experimental aircraft and personally broke records with them. And then he bought and ran two successful airlines. Yet, in his later years, he became a joyless, obsessive hermit who died without family or friends. Now, Solomon also had great wealth with his great accomplishments. It says in verses 7 and 8 that his, he had slaves that would cater to his every whim. He had more possessions than anyone else in the world. Just look at 1 Kings to see the massive amounts of the best foods that he served his court every day. And in a day when music was a luxury, he had staff musicians. On top of it all, he had the pleasures of his many wives and concubines. But none of this satisfied him in the end. His final verdict on pleasure is in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. I mean, he was the richest man in the world. His projects were magnificent. He blessed his nation with greater wealth than any who were before him or came after him. But according to him, it was all worthless. Now, how could that be? I mean, the Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. So you might think that would bring him some satisfaction. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fools, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, at first, it seems like he might have found the answer. He says, look back in verse 13, he says, wisdom's better than folly. And it's better to walk in light than in darkness. But in the long run, what good is it? It's like the difference between being in first class rather than coach on a plane that is about to crash. The professor realized that wisdom, though it does offer many benefits in this life, didn't get you anywhere in the long run. 
because he was going to die just like a fool. So, next he turns his investigation to work. Verse 18, it says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Some people, they work hard to build a legacy for their families. They have a sense of duty and obligation that drives them to sacrifice. But the professor sees this as meaningless as well. Why? Because there's no guarantee that what he built would be appreciated or used wisely after he was gone. And this proved to be the case in Solomon's life. His son, Rehoboam, squandered the success that his father had built. His foolishness divided the kingdom and led to political weakness and endless wars. Now, growing up in Reno, I was privy to the details of a similar story. I grew up in a condominium development called Smith Ridge Park in South Reno. And it was named after a guy called Pappy Smith, who many say was the father of the modern casino. In the 30s, Pappy's son Harold came to Reno, and he started a little gambling operation and called it Harold's Club. Now, I grew up playing with these cards. <laughs> we, we had lots of them. So Harold, though, was not a very successful he, he was losing money. So Pappy came to Reno and began to manage the operation. Under his leadership, it became one of the most famous and successful casinos in the world. He put up signs all over the country with that famous Herald's Club or Bust slogan. But although Harold founded the business, it was Pappy who ran it. And shortly after Pappy died in the late 60s, Harold couldn't do it, so he sold it. And it limped along for several more years under corporate management and eventually folded. Then Harris bought it, tore down the building, and there's a plaza down there where it sat today. You could go see concerts there. But that brings me back to, to uh, Smith Ridge Park and my personal connection. After the casino was sold, Harold Smith Jr., the son of Harold Smith Sr., he married the mother of one of my closest friends. And he lived there with her in her condo. And they first met when she was a dealer in the club. 
And I remember seeing them sitting on the grass together, all gaga and googly-eyed. And at the time, they seemed so old to me. I mean, they were probably in their 40s. <laughs> and why, you may ask, would a millionaire be living in a middle-class condominium belonging to his sixth wife? Well, it's because Junior had taken family money to Yugoslavia, and he built his own casino. But soon after it was completed, the government not so politely asked him to leave the country <laughs> and never return. <laughs> so he ended up back home dealing cards in other casinos. So much for all of Pappy's toil under the sun in Reno, Nevada. So none of these things that the professor tried brought him any satisfaction. There was always something missing, an emptiness, a longing that couldn't be fulfilled. And it's been the goal of the professor to bring us along with him to this point of helplessness and despair. This is his cattle goad to push us where he wants us to go. Now, C.S. Lewis writes about this unfulfilled longing in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And that's exactly the strategy of the professor, to arouse our desire for the real thing. And now we're finally going to get a reprieve from all of this negativity. The professor is going to take off his mask and tell us about that real thing. He's going to bring God into the equation. So in verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now the bottom line of this chapter is that we can enjoy the good things in life that God provides. And here Lewis goes on about that unsatisfied desire for the real thing. He says, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. 
I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Christians can live in a state of discontent. Christians can experience the emptiness of living under the sun if they focus only on those earthly blessings. But when we acknowledge that God is the source of all good things and seek to please him, those blessings become little islands of satisfaction in this broken and chaotic world. And that satisfaction is available to all of us, young or old, rich or poor. All of us have to eat. All of us have to work. And the professor says there's nothing better in life than to enjoy those things. But we must please God. We must put him first. And that's the key. We don't make those things our goal. We don't love them. That is idolatry. We must love the God who gave them. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well, he told her that he would give her living water and that she would never thirst again. See, only Jesus can supply that ultimate kind of satisfaction. I know I referenced this verse last week in regards to how God rewards faith, but it's crucial here in our understanding of salvation. So Hebrews eleven six, And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's through faith, not through our works. That's the only way you can please God. Only in believing that Jesus' death on the cross takes away our sins can we be forgiven and then become pleasing to him. And the professor ends with a warning for those who do not please the Lord. First part of, second part of verse 26 says, But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The sinner, the one who has made the pursuit of these things his ultimate goal, is lost in the end and is left utterly unsatisfied. And those things that he was after are going to be given to those who please God. Not in this life, but in the next one. The only true satisfaction that you and I can have under the sun comes from Jesus. Nothing in this world, apart from him, can satisfy. Do you want that satisfaction? Go to Jesus, who freely gives of the water of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you do fill the longing of our soul. And, Lord, that you... Give us that desire for another country that we know will bring total satisfaction when we stand and see you face to face. 
So Lord, we pray that you would give us the stamina to press forward in this world, um, that we might be there before you with all creation at the end of the age. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.